Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome back to our chat with John McManus about his new book, To the End of the Earth. On Tuesday, we built the groundwork for Luzon in the Philippines. But today we're going to get into the battle, especially what the Sixth Army were doing on the ground. You know, what, what is the timescale of, of, of Sixth Army? You know, how, just how slow is Kruger and, and, and you know, what are the main things, hap- what are the main events that are happening? Yeah, so the invasion happens on January 9th and two, three weeks later, they're still really nowhere near Manila uh, in terms of actually liberating the place. Uh, so, and also Clark Field too, which is the other really significant objective. Um, the the air bases that were located northwest of Manila and uh, were, of course, extraordinarily important. So, at that point, as you're nearing the end of January, you know, Sixth Army is just kind of not bogged down, but it's advancing on a two to three mile pace per day, something like that. It's it's clearing out Clark Field, which is a really pretty hellacious fight. For the, for the units that are part of it. One of the things that slows you down there is that the Japanese have just sort of sowed the airfields and hangars and whatnot with um, discarded ordnance. Yeah. Uh, so engineers literally identify hundreds of bombs and either explode them in place or remove them. And then you're also getting fire from the high ground that's farther to the west. Um, so, so Kruger is just kind of fighting this as a kind of deliberate step-by-step campaign, really quite similar to like, um, fall of 44 in, in Eastern France and Belgium and whatnot as this mm. kind of incremental advance. Um, and so in that sense, what I say in the book is that I think Kruger has a better sense of the tactical realities that are they're facing than does MacArthur, but MacArthur has a much better grasp of the strategic realities yeah. because Kruger clearly doesn't get how important Manila is and, and what that means to this larger purpose of being in the archipelago and what it means to the allied world, what it will mean to the Japanese to lose it. Kruger doesn't quite get that. That's a problem. And, and, and just to go back to the Japanese. So, so, so what's going on there? What is their plan? And, 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 you know, we've got Yamashita who's, and, and, yeah. and you've got Yamashita who's one of the, one of the most interesting of all the Japanese generals. Uh, so he had, of course, been the guy who, uh, defeated the the uh, the British at uh, at Malaya, you know, and at Singapore, the Tiger of Malaya, there. yeah, Tiger of Malaya. Um, but he's been he had been sidetracked for much of the war because he had kind of fallen out with Hideki Tojo, who, who was prime minister through much of the war. Yeah. Um, it was much more of a firebrand for Yamashita, though Yamashita had flirted with those sort of the, what we would think of like the the sort of imperial Japanese army hyper nationalist kind of expansionism. Uh, but Yamashita came from a more humble background than most people at his level. He was the son of a uh, of a doctor on, on one of the smaller islands in the north, um, a more remote place. 
uh, and he's just a total meritocracy kind of guy. Um, he is, he's doesn't want war with the United States, um, and Britain, you know, it's kind of similar to Yamamoto in that regard too. Uh, he respects his adversary. And, and so he's been brought back because by now uh, the Japanese are really in tough shape and they need some of their best commanders in the key spots. So when he's brought to the Philippines, um, you know, in, in 1944, it's an indicator of how seriously the Japanese are taking the defense of, of the country. Um, and so he has to kind of, his concept is they're going to get ashore. And so the best thing we can do now is just to bleed them inland the best we can. And, and, and in that, I think he's so right because what you saw like at Guam, for instance, when, when the Japanese are going to try and attack at the waterline and all that, it's just, just absurd. Um, but like at Peleliu, once you see this inland defense using the terrain, Boy, that is that is a uh, very very dangerous. And he'd be aware now. of that, would he? He's totally aware of it. He's analyzed it. He's seen what Nakagawa did, um, and he can just he thinks he can maybe pull off something akin to that on a bigger scale. He doesn't have. I mean, he's got caves, but not quite. And he's not going to be able to bottleneck the Allies the same way. But yeah, I mean, basically, he wants to. He's got, as I said, two hundred eighty thousand military personnel, and he's got them broken up into three groups, the largest of which is under his control in northern Luzon. And their orders are mainly to, uh, you know, to, to just bog the Americans down and bleed them like it happened at Leyte. Yeah. You know, it's but, very but why similar. does he want to abandon Manila? Well, I mean, this is the part of it that makes no sense to me, especially for a commander of his obvious intelligence and quality. Because he's saying it at the time. But there's, there's, this is not kind of, I wanted to do this after I've been taken prisoner and I'm on trial. He absolutely said it at the time. His, yeah, what he says is consistent, but what a little later say most eloquently is, well, I never intended to defend Manila. Uh, I didn't think I could. <laughs> I thought I'd need to, to bog down four to six divisions there. I didn't think that the, um, he talked about like the soil consistency and he thought that they would not be able to, to dig caves there in order to, to fight a good battle and they, that they wouldn't be able to feed the population of 1.1 million Filipinos. And um, I, I mean, <laughs> I think that that Japanese has been kind of taken cared about that before. Well, yeah, exactly. I have trouble believing they really cared about that. And, but the other yeah. thing too, is like, I think his comments have been taken at face value just for generations of, Oh, well, yes, of course. He didn't intend to defend Manila. And that makes total sense. And, and, and what I do in this book is I'm like, well, now wait a minute. That makes no sense. Um, yeah. if, if he really felt that way, then it's incredible how little he understood about urban combat for a commander of his caliber. Yeah. Because if you're talking about it. So do you think he was being disingenuous? I don't know what to think. I, that's what I, I don't really, I can't divine his motives. I, I certainly admire him in terms of his professionalism and his, his excellence as a commander. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm willing to be given the benefit of the doubt, but then I would have to call him a liar, you know, and say he's disingenuous. So, but, but I mean, let's think about this a second. If your strategic concept is to basically bog down the Americans and bleed them to death, uh, you know, wherever in these fightings and, and wherever the terrain helps you do that, nothing is going to help you do that more than urban terrain. Yeah. Um, urban combat is just so um, you know, yes. such a manpower suck, isn't it? I mean, well, and for de- and for the defender, it's an in- incredible force multiplier, isn't it? It just it, it is. Yeah, 
Yeah, it gives all you those buildings, all the for. rubble, yeah. all that you could. You don't even have to really even know what you're doing. And most of these Japanese who are fighting there don't. Most of them are Navy guys. Yeah. Um, and so, well, look at look at at Stalingrad, or look at um, you know Ortona, which I've been visiting this week. I mean, you know how to how to make life really difficult is to say I'm not going to surrender this town. Yeah. I mean, and then you're then you're really in a dilemma from an American point of view. It's like, oh my god. Um, if they are going to defend Manila, then we have to destroy it to liberate it. And that means we have to destroy the people we're liberating, some of them, yeah. just like, you know, the, the Soviets have to destroy some of their own citizens at Stalingrad or wherever it would be that we're talking about here, Sandlo on a lesser scale in, in, uh, in Normandy, whatever, you know, so now you're in that kind of situation. You're, you're you as Yamashita are forcing the Americans to make that terrible choice. And once you do fight in that urban landscape, you're bleeding them, you're bogging them down, you're doing, and by the way, you're denying them the use of that incredible harbor, the Manila, the, the, the bay, which they have to have to sustain these mass operations in the archipelago. So I'm looking at all this and I'm like, why wouldn't the commander of 14th Area Army say, hey, that's the key objective of any on Luzon. And so uh, to me, that is just completely mystifying. Either he didn't understand crap about urban warfare and about what Manila meant strategically, or he was being disingenuous. Um, so we look at how proficient he was on so many levels, maybe he was disingenuous, but what is undeniable is that there's also an inner service component to this story too, because the, you know, famously the Imperial Army and Navy don't get along. Um, and so there's naval forces deployed in the, in the harbor there, and they think it's they think their orders are, you know, we're supposed to stay here and destroy all the harbor and all of our stuff. And then we're subject to Yamashita's orders. Uh, and what that ends up morphing into is, hey, we're supposed to stay here and defend the city, regardless of what we think he's saying or not. Yeah. yeah. And so you end up with a force of mostly Imperial Navy, but a couple of three battalions of Imperial Army and other mishmash. Uh, they're going to be in Manila and are basically going to fight to the death. Yeah, uh, and a battle that goes on for a month. That's one of the, one of the worst urban battles in uh, in modern history. What's so interesting about this theatre, though, John, is that is I mean, I hope anyone listening to this is is experiencing what I am, which uh, I've been experiencing reading this book. It's basically having my mind expanded into whole new whole <laughs> new compartments of understanding, and and also things that an awful lot of the, the story of Western Europe has sort of ent entered Western ideas of the martial tradition in Britain and America. You know, how armies work, what they should do, how they operate. And yet, I, 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 until I read this, I wasn't really able to add any of that into the account of any of what's happened in, the, in this theatre, into that account. Where does this sit in the American martial tradition in the way that what happened in the Western theatre? Do I have a fair idea? You've got generals firmly under the control of MacArthur, yet still able to kind of do their own thing. Because, you know, Eichelberger's, he's fascinating. The, the way he develops his own pace of operations within the logistic framework that he has available to him. Because what is it? What's the tonnage per American soldier to keep them in theatre? That's some absolutely extraordinary tonnage figure you give. <laughs> it's something like it's a ton, of, a ton of man or something to keep him in theatre for a month. At least. At least, probably probably one to three or one to five, depending on who you're it's, talking about, where they are, what they need. It's just uh, three hundred tons per division per day. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's it's I know, isn't it's it crazy? Just extraordinary. Well, and it, it? you know, the other thing about this too is that, and this is what this was King's concern, Admiral King. He's like, okay, if we're going to go back to the Philippines, you do realize we're going to be turning a lot of it into a battleground, 
And that means we're going to be destroying a lot of it, including Manila. And King sees this in a way before MacArthur does. Uh, and we're going to be putting the, 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 uh, the population in crisis. Do we really want that? Why don't we just bypass and blockade it? Well, MacArthur rejoins, and this makes sense too, says, you know what the Japanese are going to do? They're just going to starve people uh, on the Philippines then. Do we do we want to be responsible for that? And so you are in, this is, is really remarkably similar, I think, to what happens in France, Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg portions of Italy, that in order to liberate the people, um, you know, you're you're saving, you have to destroy a lot of their towns, their their homes, their lives. Um, And so it's remarkably similar. And the welcome is similar too. So if you were a GI who served in the Philippines, one of the things that really would have stood out to you is that, you know, the cheering crowds and, and all that kind of stuff like that we associate with Western Europe, that's going on in the Philippines too. On one level, you're like, wow, this is cool. I know why I'm here to liberate people. On another level, it's so profoundly tragic because you're seeing war coming to to this land. Um, and it's the population that's paying the price more than anybody. Well, we've been talking a lot about that recently. And, and you know, what is the price of liberation? I mean, I, uh, earlier this morning, I was standing in San Pietro, you know, this mm. ruined village. Well, there you go. I yeah, mean, it's, right. it's, it's, it's all there. And, and, you know, that village was quite happy mining its P's and Q's and for, for, for 600 years. <laughs> and then you know, suddenly the Germans turn up and decide they're going to turn it into the kind of, you know, the key position on the Bernhard line. And then the Americans turn up and decide that actually they don't want to sacrifice vast numbers of their infantrymen on this and, and they'd rather blow it to pieces instead. You know, and, and Yeah, which you have to do. But they're still greeted like liberators, even though they've just destroyed their, the, the, the people who are being liberated destroyed their homes it's extraordinary it is you really have to and uh, that's what you're sort of what he's figuring out in the course of the battle so initially macarthur does not have a good grasp you know what the japanese are intending to do what it's going to take to liberate manila um initially i mean he makes this one statement at one point that he thinks a a company can go in there and and uh, and grab it or something he's literally got his staff planning a parade you know and so there's a surreal nature to, to MacArthur's outlook and actions at this point, which also, by the way, I think gives way to a myth that, that sort of still lingers a little bit when the conversation about Manila comes up, that MacArthur wanted to have Manila in his pocket by his birthday on January 26. I found no evidence of that. That's just, that's just, but it, but it, it is a little telling that anyone would even spread that rumor about MacArthur because that there were enough people willing to believe it was true. I well, guess. it fits, the, it fits, doesn't it? It, it, it seems to. Yeah. And yet there was, there was no evidence of that. And that's not what his agenda was. His agenda was he loved the people and he wanted them liberated and he wanted that port. That's a port like Marseille or Antwerp in, in terms of what it's going to mean to him. We have to take a quick break and we'll be back in a second. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were 
the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA. John's taking us through the Philippines in light of his new book, To the End of the Earth. In, in, in the last bit of this chat, we should talk about the epic, epic effort of Ape Army, and particularly the Lem Verborne, which is just completely ah, brilliant. And Isn't it? Isn't, isn't it amazing, the misfortune of those cool dudes in the Eleventh Verborne that they happen to be operating in the Philippines and not in Normandy? I know. They're really impressive, aren't they? I big mean, time. wow, what an it's operation. Insane. It's just brilliant. It's big time impressive. They, yeah. they are amazing on so many levels. It's funny because, like, in my, in my World War II class... Uh, I know it won't surprise you guys to hear that a lot of my students are really excited to learn more about the 101st Airborne and the 82nd <laughs> Airborne and the, yeah. just, you know, the whole European theater. And then when I'm talking about the Pacific theater, I'll bring up the 11th Airborne and they're like, wait, there were airborne forces in the Pacific? <laughs> and and that and that's exactly the point, I think, of, of a book like this in my series. It's like, yeah, there's this whole other world out there. It's another army on a massive level doing its thing. And it includes airborne forces, yeah. the 11th airborne. Um, their, their nickname was the angels, which was a, a really sardonic kind of sarcastic nickname because they like many airborne folks could get into a little trouble here and there. Um, so woe to any neighboring unit that did not guard uh, its food, <laughs> its equipment, <laughs> other valuables, because these guys were the kings of midnight requisitions. Yeah. They liked liquor. They liked trouble. They liked women. Uh, you know, they, they like they were fighters. And so um, they, they had, uh, among other units in theater, I think this is so funny, their uh, their nickname was um, Alibaba and his eight thousand thieves. You know, referring to Joe Swing, who, who Jim mentioned at the the beginning of the yeah. pod, um, and and so you know they go into combat. You know, they do some patrolling in New Guinea, but their main heavy combat initially is on Leyte. And yeah. you know what's fascinating about this? The way they fight in Leyte is remarkably similar to the way Merrill's Marauders fight in uh, in northern Burma in the spring of nineteen forty four. They're basically way beyond the main Allied line. Uh, working behind Japanese lines, if, if if those lines even exist, really. And they're being resupplied by air. 360,000 tons of aerial cargo resupply for the 11th Airborne on Leyte. So 360,000. Isn't that just unreal? So Swing, from his viewpoint, that's how his division is being sustained. And even then, I mean, it means you've got 1K ration a day and, you know, maybe not enough ammo and that that kind of thing. But it's... It's it's really a pretty remarkable unit as it shows itself in uh, on Leyte. Well, you, and you, and you you come up with this line, which I just thought, wow, we should just put that at the start of a uh, of a podcast and and discuss. Swing fervently believed 
that a highly motivated, well-trained combat soldier was the ultimate weapon of yeah. war. I mean, what a line! Uh, it's, it's. I mean, maybe maybe we should discuss that at another time. But 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 Swing is a really interesting character, isn't very he? much so. Yeah, he's a classmate of Eisenhower's um, and Bradley, and so he is one of the airborne pioneers, actually. And he had, you know, he had served in Sicily and and analyzed the the operations there. And then you know he's in line to get an airborne division, and the Eleventh Airborne is what he's got. And he is a total swashbuckling, driving kind of guy. He drove his staff nuts. He conflicted with them at times. He conflicted with his soldiers at times. But there's no question he was a really effective commander and so aggressive. Exactly what you want your airborne commander to be. The other thing, too, that's a little bit, though he, just from what I told you, you could say, well, he may not have much in common with Kruger. And that might be true. But one way, similar way they recharge their batteries uh, was reading. I mean, Swing would sort of disappear into his tent and like consume four paperbacks or something. And then he'd be out and he's just good to go, you know? And, and so it was just interesting to get these, these kind of uh, insights into him from members of his staff. And he also gave some pretty, pretty good oral histories later in life. And I think he and, and Eichelberger, you talk about perfect partners. You talk about peanut butter and jelly. I mean, these guys had the exact same outlook of war. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes we hear opposites attract. I think maybe, uh, you know, identical attracts maybe even more. And uh, Swing and Eichelberger are classic examples. So the 11th Airborne is sent in on January 31st south of Manila at a place called Nasugbu. Um, so you're basically landing an airborne division amphibiously initially. So what's the one thing that's different about 11th Airborne versus Europe, two thirds of the 11th Airborne were glider guys. Uh, most of whom don't really go into combat in gliders, though, unlike Europe, but they're glider trained. And then one third were paratroopers, the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, so so it's the glider guys who are going to go in with this invasion and then have this kind of drive uh, on the road net inland there. And then there are the 511. But they're not coming in by glider. Right? They don't. They're not coming in. No, by they're glider. not coming in by glider. So, but the aerial landings are from the 511 Parachute Infantry Regiment that lands at a place called Tagaytay Ridge. Um, you know, a couple of days later, and so it's this sort of, um, it, it's kind of market. And this is kind of southwest of Manila. It's southwest Manila. So the idea is come up from the south, and you're, you catch the Japanese in Manila in a pincers. And so, so MacArthur kind of unleashes Eichelberger and Swing this way. So Eichelberger's in this weird spot of being an army commander who's really on site controlling one division as his whole army, an 8,000 man division, uh, you know, that is now all of 8th Army, weirdly. The rest of 8th Army is on Leyte dealing with that mess too. So Mar- Eichelberger's aware of that, but being Eichelberger, he wants to be right there at the front. And that's where he and Swing both are in this whole ride north. I mean, I'm talking like 55, 60 miles. You were moving north. They completely outfight, outwit, outthink the Japanese at almost every turn. Um, and and but what eventually stops them is that uh, the uh, the Japanese commander in Manila, who is uh, a guy named Rear Admiral uh, Iwabuchi, he has constructed his strongest, most uh, powerful fortifications and defensive net networks what's called the Genko line and the Southern uh, Anverons of Manila, because he thought that's where the main American attack would come from. So you've got a light airborne division that's trying to take on um, layered belts of urban fortifications, basically buildings turned to pillboxes. 
Um, so 11th Airborne could only accomplish so much in that kind of context, but what they do is actually really remarkable. Tales of great valour in that in that fighting, aren't there? I mean, this is the thing, you know, you, you, people want to hear about Dick Winters, don't they, when they think about American right. Airborne, Airborne soldiers. Oh, God, that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> tell me about it. I, it. Every semester in my World War II class, I, I have about usually three to six students who want to do a paper on Dick Winters. And, and it's no <laughs> disrespect to him, because obviously I admire him as we all do. But yeah. I, I say to them, just think of how many Dick Winters papers I've seen by now. Yeah. And, and then the lot are like, oh, okay, yeah. And so I'm like, if you love Airborne, believe me, there's plenty of other great stories. Well, well, how many, uh, you know, how many Dick Winters there are out there, actually? That's right. And, and the 11th Airborne features a lot of them. And, and you know, the other thing that's really confusing about this, there's another parachute infantry regiment in theater. Yes. But they're not part of the 11th Airborne. Yes. They're the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment. Who've <laughs> so just sort of ended up. Confusing enough for you? Yeah. Well, yes, you've just sort of ended up doing their own thing aren't they they're, they're, they're not they're not tied to anyone in particular they're not they're, and they they're don't not want to be divisional wing it's very weird isn't it peculiar it is. sort of so peculiar weird. army um uh america u.s army sort of anomaly isn't it although it's a sort of normal anomaly isn't it really it is so what's happened is the the 503rd has been deployed to theater in 1943 before the 11th airborne so they're deployed initially as their own parachute infantry regiment that make a drop in new guinea at a place called nadzab in uh, September of 43. Uh, so they've been around a while yeah. and they're, they're really looking for a major fight by the time of this 1945 campaign, because I think they've been kind of underutilized asset. They would agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they don't want to be part of the 11th airborne. They like having their own thing. They like their independence. And they're like, we are ourselves. We're the greatest airborne unit in theater. And the 11th <laughs> airborne is like, yeah, we don't want you anyway. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so they're operating in these two sort of parallel spheres the 11th Airborne, of course, ends up fighting ferociously on the Genko line. Um, and then they end up in the sort of slog in northern Manila, you know, through the rest of the war, fighting that kind of hilltop to hilltop thing that goes on. 503rd has arguably the most dramatic airborne mission of the entire uh, Pacific War, which is the drop on Corregidor in February 1945. Let, let's talk about Corregidor, because the airborne battle, the, the, what the 503rd do... Um, jumping onto Corregidor is absolutely extraordinary, and also, um, it, it's very it's very interesting as well because it because it kind of it's one of those airborne battles which actually sort of delivers on the delivers delivers on the sort of very often airborne operations are oversold in terms of potential during the Second World War, <laughs> and this is one where they where they actually they completely deliver. It's the it's the most extraordinary story. T t take us through it, John. Corregidor is this is this uh, island right out in the middle of Manila, Manila Bay, and in order to really and it's where utilize... MacArthur leaves from in 1942, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. So it had been heavily fortified by U.S. Army engineers before the war with tunnels and whatnot. Um, so it's a, it was a good place to hold out initially, but of course, eventually the Japanese taken in May of 42. Well, in order to really... And what sort of size is it? Just for, sorry to interrupt, but, but but what kind of size are we talking about here? Uh, not big at all. It's, uh, you know, maybe six miles from end to end from, from one coast yeah. to the other. So it's and tiny. Two miles the other direction in width. I mean, it's it's tiny. It looks like a little bird beak, sort of. Uh, it's uh, it's just an odd thing. Like the, the island in its eastern end trails off in this sort of narrow inlet uh, or islet, maybe is a better way to say it. So, so um, if you, but at the same time, if you really want to have your your um, your ships traverse in and out of Manila Bay unharassed, you've got to control Corregidor. Uh, and and the the Japanese, of course, knew this, and they'd been somewhat fortifying it, but mainly just sitting there waiting to be attacked. And and here we could we talked earlier about the intel side. 
Willoughby thinks there's maybe about 800 leftovers there. Actually, there's a garrison of about 5,000. So this is another time when he just gets it spectacularly wrong. Um, and so the way that they, they come up with to, to grab Corregidor is to, to uh, drop the 503rd parachute infantry initially, uh, you know, on, on this very, I would argue, maybe it's the smallest um, drop zone for a regimental sized parachute unit in World War II that I know of. It's basically a few hundred yards uh, near a golf course, near, near an old U.S. Army barracks, and it's not in good shape. So you're going to do that, and then you're going to have a battalion come across in Leningrad from the, uh, the 34th Infantry Regiment of the 24th Division. So they're coming across from Bataan. So you got airborne and amphibious, and this is the the Bataan Peninsula that sort of yeah, which down. you can you can literally see from Corregidor and vice versa. So they're very close. Um, so um, so those divisions, the twenty fourth and another one called the thirty eighth Infantry Division, have been sort of clearing out Bataan in the run up to this uh, to make this possible. And then the five hundred third lands uh, in February of forty five, and of course you talk about a really motivated regiment. Uh, to go and redeem this place that symbolized the American defeat there, um, to get revenge. And so um, they are really well-trained and motivated. And the Japanese commander, <laughs> we talk about narrowness a lot uh, on this this, uh, this podcast. I think uh, this guy just sort of dismissed the possibility the Americans could have an airborne drop. So everything was oriented toward um, amphibious landing. The irony of ironies. He was out looking with his staff when the jumps happened. Um, he out he was out looking with his staff at Bataan because he'd noticed activity there and figured uh, the Americans were about to to, to put uh, people aboard landing craft and land. And he was right about that, but he didn't take into account the possibility they're going to land paratroopers. And so troopers land near him. They kill him. Uh, they kill several members of the staff. And you know, so the Japanese in, from the get go on Corregidor are really just this kind of disorganized mass of hunkered down guys who are just going to fight to the death. There's yeah. no mean, command and control organization, really. I mean, the story the story of the landings is absolutely amazing because they're, they're so constricted on the drop zones. They're dropping out in sticks of seven and the Dakotas are going back round to drop the rest of the sticks. So they break the sticks up, don't they, John? And they, cu- and they come round again over the drop zone to deliver the, the next portion of the six. Because I think it's, I, I can't remember what sticks the Americans jump in. I think it might be 21. So you have to go, you have to do three, ter- three circuits to deliver yep. the whole aircraft's load. And when you consider that very often the cr- cr- criticism in the European theatre of, of, you know, the transport pilots aren't very well trained. They're not the best people. They're kind of not up to it. And they, and the- yeah, but then think what those transport pilots have been well, doing Well, that's out what there. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So, so you know, stark contrast um, to, to to the some of the perceptions of what what you can do with airborne. You know, that they're able that they're that they're confident they could pull this off, and they do. It's it's absolutely amazing because because there's an airstrip, isn't there? And they're told you can't go on the airstrip. You're going to have to go in the middle and and disrupt the Japanese as best as possible, rather than land in the obvious place. It's absolutely amazing, and it absolutely shows, doesn't it? That, that if it, it, when you, when you have really really good pilots and navigators with your air, with your with your airborne troops, it's a marriage made it really in heaven. It is, and they worked very well together. They had uh, so Colonel George Jones was the the commander of the five hundred third. He was a young West Pointer. Um, he had taken over under tragic circumstances. His predecessor, um, Colonel Kinsler, had actually committed suicide back in in New Guinea. Um, so Jones is taking over and actually has this is this is interesting too. He has a meeting with Kruger, and Kruger <laughs> Kruger 
basically tells him, I don't know anything about you, who you are, but you're next in line. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll see how you perform. If you don't, you're going to be out. Oh, gee, thanks, sir. You know, I mean, that was basically the meeting. <laughs> and so Jones is, as you guys said, he's quite an innovator. So he works very closely with uh, the transport folks to figure out exactly how you're going to do this. And yeah, they fly in an ellipse and the sticks go out sort of one by one. And the reason you can get away with that, of course, is that the Japanese don't have a lot of anti-aircraft assets and you control the air and all that. And it's daylight. Um, but even so, those landings are rough. I mean, Jones almost gets put it. He almost, I almost spoke in a much higher pitch. Um, he, he, uh, went on, landed on this, this uh, sharp tree branch that, that hit his inner thigh. Um, so there were, there were a number of jump injuries. It was rocky, but the bottom line is, you know, yeah, 503rd, uh, two battalions get ashore or get a, you know, landed very well. The other is landed via landing craft later on. I think Jones is really interesting, too, because unlike some airborne commanders, he's not like everything has to be done with parachutes. He's like, if we can get an easier way, why don't we just do that? And and so he's going to do that with his third battalion. Yeah, that's really interesting, which is smart in my view. And so, yeah, but, but you end up in this incremental fight that goes on for it's two weeks. It's such a great episode, though. Isn't it is. It? It's, a, it's a two week hellacious. It's an amazing fight. episode. Hellacious fight. Um, yeah. and, and, and this is, of course, not an appealing mm. thing to say, but this is what happened. Um, by the time this battle gets deep into the sixth, seventh, eighth day, uh, one of the biggest problems you're having is the fly population because there's so many dead bodies on this island, so many dead Japanese, especially that you're talking about billions and billions of flies. Um, and the stench, it was said that the stench was so terrible that people aboard ships sailing by Corregidor uh, could actually smell it, uh, that, that that's what this island was like. Um, so it was just this sort of incremental fight, sort of hill to hill and cave to cave, especially it's, there's not a lot of caves, but there were a lot of, you know, underground dugouts and all these kinds of things the Japanese had. So from a Japanese perspective, you're probably cut off from your command. You're probably confused and you're just fighting to the death in place in small groups, I would say. Because that's your only option. Pretty much your only option. You're not going to surrender. You don't surrender. You don't surrender. That's what's expected. I've got to say, I've become a bit obsessed with the Philippines. You, know, you and me both. You know, I've, I've, I've read James Scott's book, and, and, and now this, John, which is, you know, it really is brilliant. And I just so want to go there. I really want to go and check yeah, it out. And I mean, it, absolutely. And I want to know more. About the eleventh Airborne, I just, I just think they're the, they're the forgotten heroes, you know. Well, John, thanks so much for getting us started. We, we've got the thing underway now. I think um, we hope we hope everyone feeling the mind expanding power of talking about this theatre that I've. Experienced. Oh, it's it is such a good book, and also it's completely, it's totally readable. It's utterly compelling. It's not a massive doorstop. It's it's a, it's just a decent, wholesome size, fascinating from start to finish book. And and anyone who buys this will be in for an absolute treat. Uh, well, it's a fascinating book, John. To the End of the Earth, John McManus's new book, um, is with us very, very soon. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again next time. Uh, cheerio. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.